my art is a visual manifestation. It's a sort of mark making that reflects my lived experience um, and that reflects all of my healing. And so I even feel like, you know, I designed this room, I, I grow these plants, I made the art and I know that there's something that people feel when they are looking at me, even through a screen and they feel something. And um, today I was talking to um, a new plant medicine guide. And when she got on the call, she said, I just have to stop to take it in because there's a lot of information that the plants are trying to say and that mm -hmm. the colors are trying to say. And I really appreciated that she saw my labor, my intentionality, and also me. How do you make art for our time? How do you engage your creative life force to make art that meets this moment in which systems are collapsing and a new world is wanting to be born? My name is Gibran Rivera. I am a teacher, guide, coach, and facilitator. And this is my podcast. Here, I am inviting you into a conversation with remarkable leaders who are devoting their lives to the evolution of consciousness and culture. With this episode, I introduce you to my dear friend Fabiana Rodriguez. Fabiana is an interdisciplinary artist, a cultural organizer, and a social justice activist whose work expands a breadth that is almost hard to conceive of. In this deep and often vulnerable conversation, we cover a whole lot of ground. We talk about the creative process itself. We talk about the shift in mediums that Fabiana is making as she starts to turn towards film. We talk about things like the trauma of abortion and the power of psychedelic medicine. I cannot wait for you to listen to the podcast, and I cannot wait to hear what you think. Enjoy. Fabiana Rodriguez, my dear longtime friend, uh, artist, movement actor, all around goddess, goddess, not goddess, goddess, but goddess works for you, like the goddess. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> um, I am so honored. I'm so thrilled that you will make a little bit of time to be in conversation together. I can't wait for our listeners to hear your wisdom and get the transmission uh, of power and wakefulness that you bring. So um, thank you for being here. Mm, thank you, Gibran. I'm happy to join you. Yeah. And uh, I like... I wanted people to get into your work and into what you're thinking about and into your story. That's important to me. But I'd like to begin the podcast by asking guests a question, which is, tell me about something that you used to believe to be true, something that used to define your sense of who you are, that you have changed your mind about. And, and the reason for that question, Fabiana, is I think we live in a world where people are only doubling down on their beliefs and what they think is true. 
And so we just polarize more. There's no room for transformation, for change. There's no, not even a real room for debate and learning from each other. It's just like a space of assertion, you know? And I like to show that the dope people I know are people who are willing to change their minds about important things. So I was mm. curious um, if you have something like that to share with us. Yes. Um, I would say that what I have most changed and I'm still in the process of changing is my relationship to productivity mm-hmm. and to working hard. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up in an immigrant family in which hard work, it was a key identity that, that my family had one because they were immigrants. Uh, my father was Afro-Peruano, Black Peruvian. Uh, and so, you know, because of systemic racism, he had to work even harder. And um, my mother, in an effort to, you know, really just have her autonomy, she is one of the hardest workers I know. I mean, she even works through the night. She has uh, an answering service business that is 24 hours. And so my my mom especially would tell me, um, which means you sleep when you die. And it's actually a very common phrase throughout uh, Latin America. It's this idea, it's this work ethic uh, that is about, um, that really defines actually our culture. And that, uh, of course, shaped me. And so I was always a very high achieving kid. I uh, had a very high GPA. I was head of the class. I was, I ran for school president, you know, when I was in middle school and in high school, I was leader of the club. I would do extracurricular activities on the weekends. I would go to math and science camp. I would have after school tutors, piano lessons. Like it was, even as I describe it, I am like, wow. Um, I had a lot, a lot of responsibility as a kid and even as a teenager. Uh, which was, in my in my parents' view, of course, it was about keeping me busy so that I wouldn't get involved in gang life because it was also the 80s and 90s was the war on drugs. And so ensuring that I was either at home or in a place where I was safe was critical, critical to my survival because a lot of my friends were not safe. And I have a lot of memories about what happened to them, you know, whether they ended up in prison or some of my homegirls were sexually assaulted or they ended up pregnant. Like it was not a safe place. That is the truth. And um, so the idea of productivity was ingrained throughout my entire childhood and adolescence. And then when I got to college and I realized that I really wanted to be an artist, uh, I did not want to go the math and science route, uh, despite my parents longing for me to do that because of course they did not have a college degree. Uh, Once I decided to drop out and be an artist, it's not like my ideas of productivity changed because I actually really doubled down on them and I taught myself how to code. Um, I learned how to build websites. It was the beginning of the dot-com era and I built my own business. And a lot of the reasons why I am successful have to do with being a high achiever. Yes. And so I yes. think it's actually, it's very complicated because as women of color, in order to stand out, 
and to have autonomy, you actually have to work twice as hard. For, for, for Black women, it's probably three times as hard, right? For immigrants, for um, uh, folks who, who face even more marginalized identities than I do. And I have worked extremely hard throughout my life and especially in my 20s and 30s. It's part of the reason why I have founded five institutions. I've grown my art business just in ways that are, um, you know, just incredible. And I get rewarded for that. My, the society rewards me for that. I get a lot of recognition, but uh, where, where, I'm, where I've arrived to is that it is also a consequence of capitalism. It's a consequence of needing to be uh, high-performing and outstanding in order to survive. And that's another form of, it's, it's, it's another form of assault on the body because really what it meant was not sleeping, you know, not like just, I think about how many years I've spent in front of a screen or how many years I've spent on planes getting to the next gig um, away from my family, away from people that I love. And um, that's just not how I wanna live anymore. And I think it's actually had, it's had a lot of consequences including, you know, ongoing pain in my body that is resulting from years of, you know, carrying a heavy backpack or um, just not making time for the kind of movement that my body needed. And so now I have to heal in a very different way, but also to, to unlearn the addictiveness of high productivity. Yeah. There, it also, what it's also done is that um, it's made it harder for me to be still or to be with my thoughts and feelings around what are all the consequences of 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 having to live in a society where you're loved and celebrated when you're outstanding yeah. uh, and not when you're just human. And so I'm now, I'm, I'm working through that. I try to, and that means um, I'm trying to have more time where I can um, spend in nature, more unscheduled time, just moving at a different pace also, but because I've been a high achiever, I move at a speed that's like superhuman. Yes. And I'm trying to change that. Yeah. And so these are the same things that make me who I am, but I think that it's time for me to revisit them yeah. and it's okay to slow down. And that's, so that's, that's the biggest belief I've, I've been changing. This is so powerful and so relevant. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Um, for sharing and for being so self-reflective about it. I'm, I'm, you, you've obviously been considering this and for being honest about the challenge implied in the shift, right? Because we think, we, like, we make the realization that something has to change, but there's that, that doesn't equate changing it, right? Because it's, it is like you say, how we derive value from our, like how we like, See, imagine ourselves as valuable to our culture and to our society. So it seems like quite, quite the challenge. What are you learning? Like what, what is becoming possible when you 
step even momentarily out of the out of that game, out of the out of mm. the productivity game. Like yeah. what happens? Well, spaciousness for new relationships to emerge happens. So the other thing around being incredibly busy is that you don't get to cultivate the kinds of relationships you want in, unless you absolutely need them, right? And sometimes for me, that looked like, you know, having lovers that I could get intimate with, but that were still not necessarily lovers I would be in a long-term partnership with mm -hmm. because there was always other things that were um, more important. And so before you know it, like 10 years goes by, 20 years goes by, and then I'm like, oh, wow, I actually haven't cultivated a practice to have spaciousness so that I could build deep, intimate relationships um, that don't have to be romantic. And COVID really brought that front and center uh, because with COVID, you know, me as being, I, I'm a self-partnered woman currently. And what that means is when, when COVID happens, a lot of the extra things just kind of fell off. And right, I'm not traveling, I'm at home and my need for deep personal connection just really increased. And I had realized that in all of the years that I spent focusing on my career and my success, that I it comes at a cost, right? What you put your focus on is, is also what you don't put your focus on. And so um, now I have, now that I'm intentionally making more time, there's just spaciousness. And in spaciousness, things emerge that can surprise you and also you need spaciousness to have relationships you need spaciousness to have to enjoy life right for me to be able to enjoy nature or to be able to just be human I need more spaciousness uh, and I think what's also emerged is that being very clear around what I really need to spend my time on and with who because if I'm not You know, in the past, I can have eight or 10 meetings in a day, right? right? Like right. just long days. And when you say, I'm only going to have four meetings or six meetings, then you have to say no. But then who do you say yes to? Your yes has to get very refined. Mm -hmm. And it's really helped me. And now, you know, now that I want to work on film and I'm working on a film I need spaciousness. I need time to just be in my head yeah. and to just go deep, deep, deep into all of my wounds. Uh, and it's fascinating that when I have made uh, spaciousness that I've been surprised, like I've been surprised at what the universe sends me. And so it's a very, it's an, it's an affirmation that if I can make space also, I'm not always going to have control over what arrives to me, right? What I'm attracting. I'm not always going to have control over that, but I can help shape it by being very specific where I give, where I put my time and knowing that I don't have to say yes to everything. That's powerful. That's powerful. That is the truth. And it takes so much discipline, so much, so much discipline. 
that to do that, so much faith even, right? Particularly when you come from one way of being, it's almost like for me, it's been, it often was like, you know, when you're independent, you're hustling, right? For your work. But then if you're lucky, if you do good work, you get to a place where you have more work than you right. need, but it, but you're in the habit of saying yes to work because you don't know if, you know. Um, I had two other questions along these lines for you. One is, one is 30 minutes before I saw you, I was at the airport uh, just to pick up a rental car. I was at the rental car center. Uh-huh. I wasn't on an airplane, but I've been, you know, I periodically go rent a car because I make these journeys to Columbus, right? To be with my beloved Tuesday, who you know. And so I noticed a lot more activity at the airport mm-hmm. than every other time I've gone, right? And I could feel that energy, like the, the possibility of the economy opening back up of this vaccine of like, I could feel in my body with honestly, if I'm honest with more anxiety than excitement, right? That the thing, the, the way of way of being is like calling back, right? People are coming out. And I don't, I don't want to dismiss the goodness of like getting free from being sheltered in place, but also the fear about like, the old ways wanting to make a call. And so my question to you is that like, yeah. what are you going to do? Do you have a sense of yeah. how you're going to protect yourself when the kind of COVID wall, when the, when the kind of COVID walls fall down, you know, do you have an, an idea of how you're going to do it? That's a great question. That's a great question. I've actually have been thinking about this. Um, there are practices that I've adopted in COVID, in the COVID era, which is now, it was, it was a year for me on March 8th, that I'm going to continue to have. Um, and I, I understand what you're talking about, which is, it's actually a very, um, it's, it's a little bit of a, of a troubled energy because it also, what, what has happened is that our governments have failed us. And a lot of people are dealing with economic crisis, mental health crisis, isolation. And when you initially just see all of that come out, um, you know, it's like a little, it's a little troubling because Mm -hmm. we haven't had opportunities or guidance on how to work through this as a society. Uh, And, and I'm, I'm, I'm really glad that one of the decisions that I made was actually that I'm not going to be traveling as much as I used to. I used to be on a plane once a week, sometimes twice a week, you know, two cities. I don't want to do that anymore. And what it means, of course, it means turning away all this other income. But the great thing is that once that income went away, I realized that actually I could continue selling my art and I'll be fine. And so I was very grateful that in COVID, I realized that it's actually not sustainable for me to always be on a plane. It's hard on my relationships. You know, it's hard because I come back and I'm tired. Um, not to mention having to always be um, eating out. You know, I'm a vegan, so it's very hard to eat when I'm traveling in certain cities, having to sleep in a hotel all the time, and just having to wait for delayed flights. Yeah, and cancel flights, just like, I don't want to do that anymore. And instead, what new practices have emerged is that I made the most art 
in 2020 that I've ever made in my life. I made wow. over 300 works of art. Most of them are sold, they sold. And so instead of, you know, being on a plane, I could actually be making something. I grew a garden, you know, growing my food. I have a, such a different relationship to my dogs, even my animals. Uh, I go hiking with them now pretty regularly, which I didn't do before. And so it's opened up all these new possibilities. And so what I'm, what I am going to do, and I encourage people to do is to make a list of your new practices and how you can protect those practices, yeah. right? What are the pivots that you have made for some people? It's eating differently, cooking. Some people have learned how to cook. Some people have actually realized that they are introverts and that they um, have a very low capacity for social connection and that's okay. Right. Um, a lot of my, a handful of my friendships just transitioned into non-friendships and that's okay because the ones that needed to stick around stuck around. And now I'm very grateful and focused on those. Um, I even made myself a list of who is the people in my circle that I intentionally want to continue building with because now I can make time for them because I'm not going to be on a plane for eight hours and I can, you know, cook for them or just make some, some social time. So I won't be traveling anymore. And if I am going to travel, the price is going to be high to get me wherever right. they need to go, you know? Um, and also I'm committed to having a better relationship to my natural environment. And that includes gardening, you know, it includes my relationship with my plants, with my um, four-legged friends who are really have been, I've, I love I just think animals for people who have, who live solo like me has been such a gift. Uh, and that's what I'm going to continue. Oh, also the other thing that allowed me to do, which I didn't do before, you know, usually I would be walking in airports. So I was pretty active. And now I'm able to have um, a, an, an exercise movement class three times a week with my good friend and I realized how important moving my body is and not just running from gate to gate or, you know, walking around the streets of New York City, but actually intentionally moving, you know, circulating the energy. It has been such a gift. So that's another practice. And in order to have, you know, discipline, I have a lot of discipline with my art. In order to make the movie that I want to make, I need to have five, six hours a week mm -hmm. in my creative space. So I can't go back to that life. I can't go back to the life of, of just always changing environments, coming back, needing to recover. You know, um, that's not what I want to do. And I've also, my desire to have deep connections with people where I can be emotionally vulnerable is very high on my list. Because in the past, it has been, you know, I'm an artist and a lot of us who are entrepreneurs, there's a lot of, there's a lot of relationship building that has to happen to get to certain places, right? Yes. There's a lot of wheeling and dealing. And now that that has changed, because you can't be willing and dealing in the same way, right? Because we, we can't be in the physical space. Uh, it just makes me realize 
the importance of my energy and, and, and who I want to spend my time with. And I can get to the same outcomes, but they're just going to require a different approach. Beautiful. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. It's, it's again, so, so reflective. I, I'm passionately convinced that when we, when we listen to our bodies, when we slow down, when we do the relationship, when we value all the things that our ancestors valued, then we're going to find the wisdom and the courage to face the challenges in front of us. But that, that is a leap of faith. That is a huge leap of faith because we're being told that this kind of industrial approach is the way, even our movements are structured as industrial, no, from an industrial lens. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you, I want to ask you about this idea of constellations and, 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 and your relationship now, especially as you try to shift your energy um, to the social movement work that, that you do and the cultural strategy work. I want to ask you about that. But before I do that, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you, you know, with this movie, A, what can you tell us about it? And B, very practically, how do you schedule these hours, because my understanding is for creative time, it can be one hour here, one hour there, one hour there. Yeah. Like there need to be, so, you know, for the creative people that are listening, how do you schedule the creative time, right? So two questions, what can you tell us about the movie? And yeah. the second is like, how do you structure your creative time? Great, that's a great question. So first is that I'm a interdisciplinary artist. And I, while I have made short pieces, um, short video pieces, a film is a completely new medium for me. And I've been inspired because of my work in entertainment uh, and realizing that my voice is needed. Uh, what it means for me is I have to learn the form. I have to watch films and understand them, process them, take notes about them. I'm reading all kinds of books on structure, right? Technicalities, how do you write a screenplay? Uh, and for me, I need accountability. And so I've hired a film doula to help make sure that I'm moving along in a way that makes sense, but also, you know, bouncing ideas So part of my own practice, because first, I do believe that um, we can learn new mediums. We should learn new ways of expression. And uh, it, it, it really is about sitting with the medium, you know, interacting with it, understanding what you like. What, what, what do I like about the shots? What do I like about um, this person's way of directing? What stands out to me? And what might I experiment with? You know, what, what, uh, how, might, how might I make it mine through my approach, right? And you, you, you need inspiration. So I allocate time for inspiration and for processing that. And that's a certain body of work. And literally what I have to do is I know that, you know, four hours a week, I'm watching movies, taking notes, thinking about them, figuring out what was memorable. So that's one part of it. The second part, and then I'll tell you a bit about what my, my movie's about. Actually, I'll, I'll tell you now what my movie's mm -hmm. about. My movie is about my abortion. Powerful. Uh, my, my, it's about my three abortions, actually. And it's about how, it's about womb healing. Because we do not have narratives in our popular culture about abortion. Yeah. And abortion is such a stigmatized uh, and 
it, it's 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 a it's a shamed and stigmatized practice that we've been doing for hundreds of years. Yeah. Uh, it okay. wasn't shame and stigmatized before, but okay. now it is. And um, we are also at a time when politically we need to double down on our right to abortion, which to me, it's actually not just about abortion. It's about having a choice of if, when, and how you want to reproduce. And it's about having full autonomy over your body. And so for me, my story is that I come from generations of people who have not had control over their womb. Um, as you know, the descendant of Afro-Peruanos, of people who were brought against their will. Um, my grandmother, I know this for a fact, my grandmother did not have a choice in when she reproduced and there was a lot of power abuse involved in even my dad existing, right? And, and that's, a, that's womb trauma that never got resolved. And my great grandmother was also, I mean, I actually come from a line of women that were never married, wow. which means that they, they were child bearers um, of men who were never present and actually men who abused their power. Uh, uh, and, and, and use their inflicted harm against um, my black ancestors because of racism and, and because of colonization. So I have that. And then also my mom, when she first came to this country uh, was forced through the circumstances that she was in to uh, give up her firstborn to be adopted. And that womb trauma is very present in my life. And so when I think about my own decisions, um, they are not disconnected from unresolved trauma. And so what I'm working on is I want to tell a story because I know my story is a lot of people's story about I want to really tell the story of my third abortion. And my third abortion was when I decided to do what's called a self-managed abortion. And that is the abortion when you manage it you're on your on your own um, in a in your home and um, there's a lot of legalities around it and so even for me to tell my story is very dangerous because mm -hmm. there's a lot of laws and so I'm, I can't go into the details but this is exactly why I'm making a film because the realm of art allows us to break the law in the narrative Right. Powerful. Uh, and I and, and also allows us to make connections and things that it's very hard to make in real life. And so through the world of art, I'm able to um, do some healing, but also to tell a story that needs to be told because there is womb trauma throughout our entire communities. Right. And it, it hasn't been addressed. Uh, and, um, you know, for me, one of the reasons why I decided to have a self-managed abortion, my first two abortions were not self-managed. They happened in a clinical setting um, in which I went, what is called, I went under, right? And so my memory is that I was there and then I wasn't. And wow. then it was over. Wow. And the number one reason why I wanted to have a self-managed abortion was because I wanted to feel. I wanted to really feel. Because I realized that although I, 
I'm very happy to have had access to a legal, um, low-cost abortion when I needed it, that our current systems have disconnected us so much from our ancestral practices that you don't feel. I mean, this is actually the entire Western medical system is this desire to just numb all the pain. That's right. And pain is a necessary part of how we transform. That's right. And, And it's not about physical pain. It's about understanding and feeling. For me, I needed to feel in my body what was happening because I realized that both through my obsession with productivity and with these, you know, moments of terminating my pregnancy in which I remember very little. And if you ask me, what was I feeling? I actually don't know what to tell you. Yeah. Because I don't know. You can't even go back and process it in a healing ceremony. I can't even go back and process it. And there is something that is really, really bothers me about that, that, that the accepted way of having an accessible abortion is for us to remove all of our ancestral practices. And that's also colonization. So, um, and I'm not saying we shouldn't do it that way. I'm saying that we need to have choices. We need to be able to also understand our indigenous and our ancestral practices of what it means to be a womb carrier. Yes. And then what, what is the power of that? Um, and that's what I wanted to experience. And I did experience it and it changed my life. It really changed my life to understanding even the power that I have to give life. Uh, and so I'm working on, that's what my, my, my film is going to be about. And it's so, it, in reality, it's such a big, big thing that um, when it comes to creating the space for my creativity, I mean, this is like, I got to go back. Yeah. I got to go back to those moments. And one of the things that my film doula tells me is she's like, you really have to care for yourself after these sessions. You know, she's like, get a recorder, write it all out. It's going to start taking form, but you need to let it, you need to let the stories emerge. And so my creative process is that how do I make space for my mind to be clear enough to start putting the pieces together? In a very practical level, I record my ideas. I put them on index cards. I map them out. I sit down to look at it for half an hour, one hour, right? I draw out images. I allocate usually about four to five hours a week and I just block that time out. But I also need recovery time. So that, you know, I gotta, I I have to move that emotion, right? Because otherwise it becomes lodged in you. So for me, my strategy of having creative time is one that I think understanding that there is, it's a period of time, it's not forever. And I've given myself 2021 to do it. Uh, And I treat it like an artist in residence. I treat it like I have a project that I want to complete what are some key benchmarks that I want to have by quarter one, quarter two, quarter three, quarter four? And am I allocating the right amount of time for that? And am I also 
allowing myself to be iterative because it's not just going to come out. And so you need time for inspiration, for idea flow, mapping, right? Even if I record an audio message, I still got to transcribe it. What are the words that stick out, the scenes, the images? Uh, so it's about creating a workflow for yourself and knowing that, yeah, you can allocate three hours to be in the studio, but if you go to your studio and you still have to set things up and get your cafecito and do this, the time yeah. just goes. And maybe it takes you half an hour to even get into the flow. That's right. And those are all That's things right. you have to you have to account for and also know that it's not gonna last forever. So but it's like a relationship with your work. It's beautiful. And so being able to define that and say, I'm going to be in relationship with this up until this point, And then I need to wrap it up and make it because otherwise you don't make it. Yeah. Yeah. I want to thank you so much. It's such a privilege to, to get into your process, given, given the power, the power of your art. So really grateful for that. I think that's really practical and helpful for people. I wanted to pause for a second and go back because The other part of the conversation is so deep and intense and just want to first and foremost thank you um, mm -hmm. for sharing it with us, right? For going through it, for being willing to, to help others learn from your experience and, and your grief and your courage. And I want to say that, and I also want to say, mm -hmm. I want to be really careful because I'm a man, right? But right. I have the privilege of being in a healing relationship with people in a coaching relationship with people is part of my role in the world. And so I encounter abortion grief, right. From, mm -hmm. from people around me, from important women around me. And I think one of the things that's unspoken is that because it is a politically contested, right. It seems like, in any way admitting that it that it is difficult, that there is grief, that there's trauma in the process feels like it could be used against us, right? Like the, like the people who are trying to restrict that right. So in a way, it's almost like the people that are trying to defend the right have come to feel like the only way to keep the right is by making it seem like something that you can just do without right. any impact on you. And I think that's part of the dynamic here, right? The, the, the politics of it make it so that the very advocates of the right dismiss the humanness of it, you know? Well, what it is, is that we are forced into not feeling it. Right. We are forced into reducing it to a transaction and that means not talking about the feelings around it. And this is actually what the right has done. The right wing has shamed it and stigmatized it to the point that we are not able to hold the complexity of it. And that is something that I, another goal of my film is to challenge that. Because what I also really am, am not about is how The, the right wing and those who oppose abortion have stolen the concept of life, right? They have, I mean, they, they, they talk about this thing being pro-life. So first of all, 
I believe in, in protecting all life. And I also believe that if there is life growing inside of me, that I have the ability to terminate that life. And I ha should have the right to, because that is what's inside my body. And because a life has ended, I have grief over that. And that is important. We, do, we are not in a sophisticated political climate where we can talk about that because the right wing has hijacked that term. And so to even be able to say, I am, I feel grief that I ended this life. I feel grief about it. That is important. We do, we should, like, that's okay to feel grief. That is completely normal. And this is why I realized something was missing in my first two abortions, which not only was I, it was about not feeling, but then there was no conversation on grief, no space for it. And it was also almost something that I needed to hold on my own, which I did not know how to hold because I didn't even know I had, I, I didn't even know I was feeling it. I didn't even feel it. And so the third time um, that I got pregnant and I did not want to be pregnant, uh, not only did I understand that there's a cycle playing out, which is a cycle of womb trauma, but that I needed to stop and examine it. And I also needed to feel it. You know, I love what James Baldwin talks about where he says you can't confront something that you don't see or that you don't name. Um, and so it became an opportunity for me to really um, to sit with it and to also sit with the grief of it. And that's why it was powerful, because actually processing grief is a necessary part of how we heal. I mean, even when we think about it from the perspective of COVID right now and all of those who have died, if you don't process that grief, if we do not find a collective way to process that grief, we're going to look at a very sick nation. That's right. We're going to have things lodged in us that turn into diseases. And so moving that is very important. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. You know, just yesterday, yesterday, we're recording this podcast on March 12th. Yesterday was March 11th. It marked a year uh, since the World Health Organization declared a global pandemic. And so I, uh, I invited my dear friend, a medicine woman, Luana Morales, to hold grieving space. And so we had an open wow. call for my community. And, and it was a really, really, really powerful. And you could feel the presence of the ancestors as she poured water for each name mentioned, you know. And wow. it, was, it was amazing. It was virtual and it was powerful and it was medicine. And what was interesting to me is that I came in and opened up with the intention of facing our grief. And yet I left with my heart feeling big and expanded and full and well cared for, which is an interesting thing. I think we fear facing grief, but there's an incredible wisdom on the other side of it. And, and I think that's the other thing I want to say, Fabiana, to honor you and also for our participants, our participants, our listeners, to hear is that the art that you make, you know, the power of your creative life force mm -hmm. is directly proportional to the authenticity and courage with which you turn towards the truth of aliveness, right? The painful, the trauma, the growth, the power, the courage. 
that's part of what I just want to witness in you. I, that's the beauty of being in relationship with you over so many years is to like witness you continually turning to that, even when it's hard. And I feel like art, authentic, beautiful, good art for humanity is born from there. And I just wanted to name that personal mm -hmm. observation and honor Thank it. You. Yeah. yeah. Thank yeah. you for seeing me because that's exactly how I feel that my art is a visual manifestation. It's a sort of mark making that reflects my lived experience um, and that reflects all of my healing. And so I even feel like, you know, I designed this room, I, I grow these plants, I made the art and I know that there's something that people feel when they are looking at me even through a screen and they feel something and um, today I was talking to um, a new plant medicine guide and when she got on the call she said I just have to stop to take it in because there's a lot of information that the plants are trying to say and that mm -hmm. the colors are trying to say and I really appreciated that she saw my labor my intentionality and also me because I am a you know I'm a plant mom um, I am, you know, you could see there my, my, my little creature who's, um, with me and my, you know, and, and we, you know, we, uh, as powerful women, we've been rolling with our wolf packs, with mm -hmm. our canines mm -hmm. and our plants. And so this is, I, I've, I've created the space, even if it's just a, a space to connect virtually to be reminders, you know, I, I brought these beautiful flowers to just create some joy for people. And in the same way, when I make art, I am about documenting a particular moment in time. And so I've made a lot of art about COVID, about loss, about isolation, but also about regeneration, rebirth, the cocoon. You know, um, I have a piece that actually is called No Going Back, because we're not going back. I That's don't right. think we should go back. There should be no going back. That's right. It's powerful. You know, for our listeners who might be listening on a podcast platform, this is also going to be on YouTube. So if you really wanted to see what's behind Fabiana, the colors and the plants, you could do that. I have, I've had the blessing and privilege of being physically in that space. And I know the potency of those plants. And I also know that you mm. make vegan food, plant-based plant food that oh, also yeah. carries so much of your energy and, and potency. It, it, there's something you're not you're not speaking in theory. You're living you're living this stuff out. You're pouring your energy into this plant goodness, into this medicine plant plant, in plant medicine. So I just want to also acknowledge and celebrate that. I hate to interrupt a good conversation. Thank you for listening. I hope you're enjoying it. I'll be brief. I'm just asking that if you're finding meaning in this podcast episode you consider emailing it or texting it to a friend. We're not trying to reach everybody, but we want to make sure that your friends, that the right people get engaged in this conversation with remarkable leaders who are devoting their lives to the evolution of consciousness and culture. Think again. You know, it's funny, the conversation is going where it wants to go, right? Like I had this, I had this question about constellations, we might or might not get to it. Um, <laughs> And it's fine because this is holy, yeah. what we're doing right now. I yeah. feel the power of it. And I think it is more in keeping with the conversation to talk a little bit about medicine work. Mm -hmm. um, 
I think both you and I are um, have been advocates of it, have been trying to make communities of color more aware of it. Um, we are people kind of in the conversation. Um, we we're recipients of the medicine. Uh, I definitely hold the medicine. I'm just wondering what you can share about your own work and and your own what you see in in, in this emergent modality. Yeah. Uh, so first is that the medicine is ancestral wisdom. It's indigenous wisdom, and it is plant medicine comes in many forms. And I love the idea of plant medicine because for me, I've learned so much from growing food, um, from taking care of my seeds, my little baby seeds, and watching them grow into plants that I'm eventually going to eat. Been very powerful. Um, I've learned, uh, and I've learned a lot from digesting plant medicine that is designed to open up another level of consciousness. Um, and that to me, like how the ability to sort of quantum leap in my healing as a result of ingesting particular plant medicines has just been such an eye-opening experience because one is that these are indigenous practices, largely from um, the ones that we know of that are popular now, a lot of them are from this land base, right? Um, and unfortunately, a lot of the ways they were popularized was through a very kind of colonial way, which is that, you know, the white men came and learned how to do it, whether it was learning mushrooms from Maria Savina or, um, you know, extracting um, uh, parts of the ayahuasca or just really kind of dominating that space. I mean, when we think of who are the prime psychedelic voices and we think of people like Michael Pollan, you know, there's just, uh, it's, 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 a little, it's a little sad, but not unsurprising that there has been a whole kind of white appropriation of the medicine that hasn't benefited impacted communities and actually communities from with you know from these from the same communities that brought us the medicine yeah. right yeah. so um so for me i i just you know i've, I've um, done different types of psychedelics and i really just appreciate um open states of open consciousness different states of consciousness that the medicine can facilitate and that's what I think is important, is the ability to go into another space of consciousness. Different medicines show you different things. For me, the psilocybin is one of the most powerful medicines. It's through the psilocybin that I have actually really tapped into my connection to the natural world and understood it, that I am here to help protect the natural world. I'm here to usher in a different kind of era. I've witnessed the pain that colonization inflicted and, and slavery inflicted. I see in my, um, in my visions and what the medicine, I can just feel it. And I even feel it that the earth, the earth has a memory yeah. of what had happened here. You know, remember that slavery and colonization was the exploitation of Black bodies and indigenous bodies, black bodies who were stolen from their home and indigenous bodies who were ravaged through pandemic and exploited and also were enslaved 
to destroy their own environments. You know, we had mass, mass, like just wiping out of ecosystems, of entire species, disrupting ecosystems that we will never recover from, destroying languages. I mean, the genocide that happened on this land of indigenous people is significant. Um, the pain, the, 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 the exploitation of, of human bodies to destroy the earth, yeah. to destroy it. Because, you know, what was happening is that um, people were being forced, especially uh, Africans, were being enslaved in order to work the land and force a crop onto it, a monocropping, which actually disturbed. Monocropping is not how nature works. That's that right. is an exploitative colonial system. So part of what the medicine opens up to me is the depth of some of that pain. And, and I see glimpses of it. And I see what repair needs to look like, what truth, reconciliation, and repair mm -hmm. needs to look like. And it's really helped me move um, just away from an individual healing towards the collective healing, but also an earth-based healing. Nice. Right. Part of the reason why I became vegan is because... I, didn't, I don't want to participate in the exploitation of our four-legged relatives. Right. I, I just, I feel like that is in out of alignment and that our relatives, uh, whether they be dogs or cows or pigs, have a right to their life. That's all they have is their life. And in my visions, I realized that the colonial system has just impacted my imagination so much. Yeah. It's um, powerful. That... Yeah, and so I, I made that, and in doing so, I was able to, I've been able to commune with plants that I never knew before. Mm -hmm. So now my cooking is about a communion with plants, you know, really understanding the millions and millions and millions of plants that the earth gives us to digest. You know, some of them might make you hallucinate, but other ones, you know, nourish you. They give mm -hmm. you the what you need in the winter, and I've been so grateful for that. Um, and so I do think, you know, and it, and it really is a, you know, fundamental worldview, which so many of our indigenous communities have told us, but that the land gives us what we need. Yeah. Like the earth is very generous. It's very abundant. We do not have to engage in violence. Uh, and so I'm very grateful that I've had those tools. And now I want to help demystify those tools. Because my Catholic upbringing, which I've completely now rejected, I think I got every last drop of Catholicism indoctrination out of me, thanks to the medicine. Um, I really, I think it accelerates our healing. I don't think it's the only healing modality, but I Agreed. think it's one in which, yeah, when, in which we can accelerate our, the expanded state of consciousness that it allows is so critical for those of us who have been harmed. Yeah. by the system and also helps gives us a big perspective about it. That is so beautiful and powerful. I, I have another question to ask you about it and, and looking at the time, moving moving us towards a close. But I wanted to say when you said about the earth gives us what we need, another quote that came up in my head earlier when we were talking about the old way, the, the kind of old way of doing work that we have is you can never have enough of what you don't need. Somebody said this to me earlier this week, and I was like, I like that. You can never have enough of what you don't 
need because you don't need it. And so the nature of it is to make you want more of it, but you actually don't need it, right? And so you keep craving it to fulfill you because it seems it seems to promise to, but it fails to over and over again. And I just think that that wisdom paired with this idea that you just shared that the land gives us what we need, those are like different ways of tending to to our image, to our to what is true need and what is empty need, what is conditioned need, right. what is agreed, uh, and that's how capitalism works. Yeah, completely, completely. It rise off that. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I um, uh, we were having a conversation before we started that I wanted to get to before we close, which is the idea that the underground in psychedelic work needs to be protected, that the fact that we're moving towards legitimizing it does not mean that there's no more room or need for the underground. And I like the way you articulated that. It's interesting yes. to me, it resonates. So I'm curious yeah. if you could do it for our, for our listeners. Yes. So um, in keeping in line with the colonial project, the way that psychedelics are being um, approved is through the lens and pathway of psychotherapy. Mm -hmm. Psychotherapy, of course, being a very white institution that was founded by white men um, to benefit white men, right? And it, in psychotherapy, there's all kinds of approaches around, um, uh, you know, just a certain kind of separation between the person who is receiving and the person who is holding space. And I think it's very, it's, 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 it could be problematic to carry over that structure to indigenous medicine, because indigenous medicine is, of course, a decolonial practice that has a very different root. Um, and it's emerged differently in, 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 in how it's, you know, just how it's been kept from generation to generation. The issue is that when you have a pathway of psychotherapy that is saying, okay, we're going to legalize psychedelics as uh, what they're calling psychedelic assisted therapy, we continue to have a problem with white gatekeepers and this way of doing it in a way that's sanctioned by a predominantly white establishment, which a predominantly white establishment, which really has not, has not really done the healing work it needs to do. Mm -hmm. Because for as old as psychotherapy is, we still are dealing with a huge disparity in who gets therapy and who doesn't. Um, not to mention that for all the therapy you, you're giving, we are still dealing with gender violence, white supremacy. So it's not like therapy has helped address societal issues or address systemic issues. Mm -hmm. um, and so if we're looking at the medicine, you know, the medicine is a um, something that has moved in a very different way. It's a body of knowledge. It is from the earth and when you begin to make something work in its legal frame, we are still dealing with systems that leave many people behind. And we saw this with cannabis. You know, we saw this with cannabis that those who had been incarcerated are hardly able to participate in an economy, right? And on the contrary, you have the colonial project means that those who stand to benefit the most are white men. 
And that is the same thing with psychedelics. It's a real problem when we think about who are the most prominent voices on it or who's talking about psychedelics, whether it's Gwyneth Paltrow on her new show or Michael Pollan. To me, that really shows us, wow, if we're going to move into the field of legalization, which is already happening, who's going to benefit? Yeah. And yeah. also, you know, you know, for me as somebody who has done psychedelic as assisted therapy and has worked with different kinds of practitioners, I have a real um, issue with the fact that we still haven't really weaved in anti-racism practices, right? Mm -hmm. And so even something as simple for me, which is doing a land acknowledgement, I believe that land acknowledgements need to be happening anytime we're doing indigenous medicine. Is that a shared practice? No. Is that a recommended practice? Not really. Right. So um, we actually need to, uh, In I believe that in order for this medicine to truly reach those who have been most impacted, it also needs to exist in informal spaces where, where frankly, more people can access it. It's actually about expanding access. And so it's important to be mindful that as certain things become legalized, unless we're really working around access, right? Who gets access, who benefits, who is um, able to be seen as an authority or even the way, the way that it is administered, right? Which, in, you know, I talked about the ability to have land acknowledgements, et cetera, uh, touch, um, holding space for groups versus for individuals, right? Defining what kind of trauma, what about people in prison? That's right. Shouldn't they have access to it? And, and I think that, it, and, and those questions, until we have impacted people in positions of governments, then I always will, will have some mistrust for how policies are designed. And until then, I do think we need a underground space with its own code of conduct. I do think we need shared codes of conduct and shared approaches. And actually, the more we demystify it, the more that we're able to have safer spaces because we're talking about it. We're, mm -hmm. we're, we're defining what becomes acceptable, right? Um, and of course, lowering harm that, that, that can happen. Uh, so I think... Um, I think both need to exist in the same way that I believe the same thing about abortion. Yeah. I believe that until, you know, we don't live in a, we, we can hardly get a legal abortion. Yeah. Right. So do underground spaces need to exist? Absolutely. Absolutely. And they need to be safe. And, and what is called underground networks often, you know what it is? It's, it's the knowledge of the culture keepers. Yeah. It's the culture keepers who, despite, something being criminalized, they have kept with the culture, right? They have said, this is ancestral culture and we're going to keep it and we're actually gonna keep it underground until it's safe That's to come right. up again. That's right. Thank you so much, Fabiana. I think what you're saying is beautiful and it's courageous. Um, so I'm really appreciating it. It's resonating deeply. I'll make a comment and then go to the closing to the closing question that I always ask. The comment is what you said about group work. I think one of the one of the key things that I, I like to talk about every time the topic of medicine comes up is 
that because we live in a hyper-individualistic culture, what is being promoted and opened up is individualistic healing, which is fine. I am glad to hold space for individuals. It's very important, but it's only half of the coin. The most powerful medicine work that I'm aware of, that I have been a part of, is is done in groups as it was done by our ancestors. So I just wanted to lift that up and thank you for lifting it up. Um, to transition kind of quickly, just to make sure it's, I have this commitment I've made to myself um, when I am in the presence of a powerful woman, particularly in the context of this podcast. Uh, and that is, as you know, I do work with men and mm -hmm. I host the Better Men Project And I consider that my own work of atonement for harm cost, right? A way uh, to repair. And so I feel like we have a very clear and increasingly clear perspective of what toxic masculinity looks like, but a less mm -hmm. clear one of what conscious masculinity is and should mm. be. And so the question I like to ask women like yourself is, What advice do you have for men that are trying to get better? What do you mm. think men should do? Love that. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So um, I love this question because I am also very interested in moving towards positive depictions of a different kind of culture we should build, right? Which is really a rejection of the culture of domination. Mm -hmm of a culture of power over, which is what has defined masculinity is domination, power over, and a disconnection from the embodied self, right? Um, and so to counter that, what it means is a culture of partnership. And so I think what for, for what, what, when I envision what that looks like, partnership is participating in a culture of nourishing and giving life, supporting life, protecting life. Because so much of masculinity has been used to end life and to harm life. I mean, if we even think about the history of wars and militaries and where men have been deployed in the service, it has been to harm life. Right. Whether it's life in the oceans or cutting down trees or slaughtering animals or um, uh, hurting, hurting, cause, starting wars. And so if we move towards a culture of partnership and the protection and regeneration of life, mm. which means growing food, helping heal the soil so that the soil can be abundant protecting animals, protecting the most vulnerable. To me, masculine energy is about protect the protection of life, right? Because womb carriers give life and they also protect life, but they also have to care for life. And the masculine, I believe, is about also caring for life, but protecting that life through creating you know, um, uh, stable shelter, creating, helping generate warmth, uh, helping generate abundance through the growth of food, um, supporting the vulnerable, right? The vulnerable, the elders, supporting animals are vulnerable, mm -hmm. um, helping keep 
for the animals. And so that, because often, you know, with, with, with womb carriers, and we know this just from, you know, how human beings work is that when uh, any kind of baby is born, even if it's, you know, a puppy, uh, a calf or a human, they need the nurturing of their mother. Right. They need that presence. Um, and so I, I think when, when men can move into that, I actually have a lot of the men in my life now are actually life, life, life protectors and life givers. So um, my really good friend, Wilzer, uh, helps me grow food all the time. Yes. He helps me create these beautiful gardens. He takes care of the plants. Once every few months, he comes and he checks on their soil. Um, my other friend, Regen, uh, also is always caring for the seedlings. He's a perma permaculturist, yes. right? Uh, and is always looking out, making sure that the garden has what it, what it needs so that it's a, it's a nurturing place. Uh, I love the work of an organization called the Compadres Network, where they're able to hold space also for men to show up with their emotions, because part of what has happened is our culture of disembodiment and how it's it's raised men to be disembodied and not be in touch with their emotions causes harm. That's right. And so um, the ability to talk about the their emotions, but also to do your work of examining how you might repair for harm that was caused in the past and how you may create a culture where that harm is the story of, of, of the past and that instead we're building a new story towards really like life, the abundance, the nourishing, the thriving of life. Oh, and if we just think in that simple way, then it gets very hard to destroy. It gets very hard to oppress or to end or to break or, you know, to extract because regeneration is the opposite of extraction. And, you know, just like the, the campsite rule, how do you leave something better than you found it? Right? How do you, how do you arrive to environment and leave it better? That to me is what masculine energy is about um, is, is uh, a care and a regeneration of, of our, of our environment and, and of our, of all living things. That is so beautiful. I am so grateful for your wisdom. I will be actually clipping this part of the podcast and sharing it yes. with the Better Men Project. It's medicine. Yay! Very, very wise. I am so moved by our time together. Um, mm. I want to give you an opportunity to say anything you want to say in close. I do want to say to the listeners, because I teased them a couple of times um, about your work with the Center for Culture of Power, this concept of constellations. And the conversation that we had that we had was the right conversation. It was, it was yes. about vulnerability and healing and truth and what makes all of that other work possible. And you know what? Maybe I'll get you on the podcast again. Maybe it means I got to get Tara on the podcast. People should yes. check out the work of the Center for Cultural Power. Yes. Um, I just teased them about it. So I wanted to acknowledge it. Yeah. Um, well, the reason I, I began an institution is because so much of the what I was talking about is culture change. Mm -hmm. It's the adoption of new, not new, it's, it's, it's not new. We've been with these values for a long time. They've just been obscured or robbed from us. But it's a returning to another kind of culture right, to rejecting the colonial domination extractive culture that is the norm. Right now, the global norm is a culture of domination and extraction. It's part of why the planet is dying. And instead, move towards a culture of regeneration, partnership, and harmony, 
with all living things. Yes. So my organization works towards that, towards a, moving towards a different kind of worldview. And the vehicle to do that is through culture and, so the, and, and through cultural power, right? It's not just about expressing ourselves. It's about making sure that a lot of people have the ability to reclaim their culture, be culture keepers in order to, um, you know, return to our ways, which we were robbed of. Uh, so I encourage folks to, to check that out, culturalpower.org. Uh, my website where you can see my work is faviana.com. I encourage you to check out my work, support my work. By buying art, you support me. I'm an artist, after all, at the end of the day. Um, and yeah, and you can find me on Instagram. Um, I'm uh, uh, faviana1. My name is with a V and two Ns. And I talk about these things all the time. Right. These are my favorite subjects, along with sexual freedom, which we didn't even get to get into. Uh, but we're going to have to have you back. Yeah, I know. Right. <laughs> That's a whole thing. The sexual freedom thing is a whole thing. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So I encourage folks to check that out. Fabiana, what a gift. Uh, I am so honored. And I want our, our listeners to also get that in a time when you are learning and practicing saying no, that you chose to say yes. Add to this. This is a gift. I hope it was good for you too. I cannot wait for people to to hear your wisdom and feel your presence. Um, mm. Having your friendship and having your wisdom, having our relationship is one of the great privileges of my life. I celebrate it and I cherish it. And I'm so grateful for you. Uh, mm. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, amorcito. Besitos. Many blessings, goddess. If you got this far into the podcast, it is because you get what we're trying to do. Thank you so much for the gift of your attention. I, I would like to ask that right now you consider a friend or maybe two people that would resonate with this effort and send them an email or a text. Invite them to listen. We're not trying to reach everybody. But we want to make sure that we do get to the right people. To the people that want to be a part of this project of evolution of consciousness and culture. And we know that social media is a crowded place, that email inboxes are just so full of things, and that the only way uh, good messages really get around is peer-to-peer. Friend-to-friend. Your endorsement is what will matter your personal care and connection. The idea here is to make this work more sustainable and to invite people into potential experiments that will help us reimagine better ways of being together in this world. I am already grateful for your attention and I hope you'll give time to some endorsements. Before I go, I want to shout out Jade Madrone, who's been working with me for many years and is key to making this podcast happen, as well as my other friend, Will Renderos of Audio Chemists, who is essential part of this production team. Thank you for being in community. Stay tuned. Mm-hmm.